Good morning. It's good to be with you. Um, as you saw from Pastor Greg's video message, um, he is at home with Robin, um, quarantining uh, precautionarily for um, seven days, and that's you know that's almost halfway done now. And so, uh, and he still doesn't have any symptoms. So praise God for that, um, and just be uh, continuing to lift him up. Um, as well as anyone else that you know that might uh, be sick. But uh, since that he is doing that, we are going to be going into a different book. We planned on going into Jonah after we finished Obadiah last week. But this week, instead, we're going to kind of just take a little holiday. And we're going to do 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. So you can start to turn there in your own Bibles um, to follow along. We will be just looking at that one verse, but we'll be jumping around a little bit as well. And so let's pray uh, together as we um, get into this. Father, we're thankful for the ability to gather together. Um, just even as I consider the rest of the contents of Peter's letter to these churches um, and, the, and the, the hard things that he would be addressing the persecutions, the suffering, the hardships for faith. I imagine each of us, um, even hopefully, will have experienced some of that already, but certainly there's more to come. And so we'd ask that you would use this time to bless us, encourage us, convict us, teach us, um, one step further, we'd ask that you would draw us into your presence, that we'd know that we had heard and met from you, met with you, and um, we'd go away changed and not the same anymore. And this is something that we ask for each week, and we believe that you honor that and, 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 and answer those prayers. And so we'd ask that you bless this time. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So hopefully you had a moment to get to 1 Peter. It's towards the back. If you hit Revelation, you've gone too far. Just go to back to the left a little bit. Uh, right after Hebrews and James, you'll see the first letter of Peter. Um, so just by way of intro, I'm going to ask this question. How do you respond to someone who is suffering? What sort of things do you say to someone who's being treated unjustly. Now, Peter will, in this very short letter, five chapters, get into, touch on a lot more subjects than specifically that. But at, if you were to take just today and read through the entire letter, five chapters, you will definitely see that the primary focus of Peter's letter is to encourage other believers who are experiencing currently or going to experiencing suffering for their faith, persecution. I'm just going to just really quickly spout off just some of these examples, that, uh, some of the wordings that you'll, that you'll read as you read through the whole letter. Grieved by various trials, tested genuineness of faith, speak against you as evildoers, endure sorrows while suffering unjustly, do not repay evil for evil, in inferring that evil is coming upon us. 
Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Again, inferring that there's something to be feared. When you are slandered or reviled for your good behavior. He uses an example of Noah in there. And we certainly know that Noah experienced uh, a persecution for the silliness of building this ark. Another one, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Another one, rejoice as you share in Christ's sufferings. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, if anyone of you suffers as a Christian, let those who suffer according to God's will. The same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world and after you have suffered a little while. And so, five chapters, and th- these, those aren't all put into one section of the, the letter. They're spread throughout the letter. And so, clearly, this is the main point of his letter, to encourage those that are enduring suffering. And so, as I said earlier, we are really only going to get into the very first verse. Um, I even wanted to do the first two verses, and I couldn't even get out of it because there was there's so much here in this salutation. Don't sleep on this salutation. It is very rich. And so a little bit of background, just a tiny bit. If we were, if we were going to spend the next, you know, 12 weeks in 1 Peter, we would spend a lot more time here at the background. But I'm just going to give you a couple things that might help us. One, Peter's likely writing this from Rome. Okay, and so he's made his way to Rome over the over the course of the years, and he's there writing to um, these believers. Uh, another thing you might want to know is it's likely that this was written in sixty two or sixty three A.D. somewhere in there. We know that uh, the emperor Nero started a, a very um, uh, widespread persecution in 64 AD and this seems as it was written before that um, knowing that Peter and likely his wife were both crucified in that um, persecution of of Nero and so likely 62 or 63 AD and maybe that doesn't mean anything to you it helps me to give it a, a relation to something else and so we know that Pentecost was a, the Pentecost that the Holy Spirit came down was around 33 A.D. You know, in there, and so uh, you know, 30 years later, we're talking from that time that the Holy Spirit came down to dwell in men and women. So let's uh, let's read this one verse. It says, "Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ." To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And as most salutations go, it starts with the author. This would be written on some kind of parchment scroll. And so you unravel it. And the first thing you see is the author. Who, Who is this? And what are his credentials? Well, from... You might hear the word Peter and have a bunch of thoughts, you know, like the, the what's that game called where you're, uh, 
immediately thinking, you say the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, you might hear Peter and think uh, walking on water. You might hear Peter and, and think failure. You might, whatever you're thinking, he's only going to describe himself in a few ways within the letter. And so let's just quickly look at those. One, he describes himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle uh, simply means a sent one, a messenger, um, sent by the God. We could also, it's not capitalized in my Bible, but you could also capitalize Peter's description of an apostle. Because while all disciples of Christ are considered little a apostles, there, is only, there was a temporary office of a big A apostle. And these big A apostles uh, had, a, had a few different purposes and, and the selection by which it was, they were made. One is they were chosen by the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself chose them. And then as they needed to refill the office of the apostle uh, after Judas ended his life, um, they, they chose by way of the Holy Spirit. They were able to um, do signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. They were part of laying the church foundation. We don't lay the, there's no more laying of the foundation. The foundation's been laid by the apostles. And then there are, as we'll see in a moment, witnesses to the resurrection, eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And so we see his identifier as apostle here. If you look in chapter 5, Verse 1 of the same letter, it says, So I exhort you, the elders among you, as a fellow elder. So he describes himself as a fellow elder, a type of leader in the church. And a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And you see that he was an eyewitness to the sufferings and the subsequent resurrection of Christ. And so these are his credentials. This is what gives him the authority to write this letter and to encourage in this way. And so that is Peter. And while we could go into all of Peter's life according to the New Testament, um, we're not going to, and, but it would be helpful. And so I encourage you, if you don't know the life of Peter, who he was, where he, you know, how he got to meet and come into contact with Jesus, his life of training with Jesus, I encourage you to spend some time looking into those things uh, this week. But let's ponder some questions as we get into our time together. This letter, as I said, was likely written 30 years after Peter met Jesus by way of his brother Andrew. They're around the Sea of Galilee. Andrew introduces his brother Peter to Jesus, and 30 years have passed. What ways had the Holy Spirit been doing a changing work in Peter's heart and mind since that point? 30 years is a long time to be walking with the risen Lord. What has happened in him over the course of that time to get him to this point of writing this letter? How many times did Peter fail over the past 30 years? 
and then subsequently go back to the Lord because he had ringing in his mind that experience of forgiveness that he experienced um, at the same sea where he met the Lord uh, for the very first time after he failed him three times. How many times did he fail over the past 30 years but go back to the Lord because he knows his forgiveness? How ironic is it that the man who rebuked the Lord because he was foretelling of his suffering to come, would many sanctifying years later be speaking so extensively on the topic of suffering? And in what circumstances over the last 30 years did Peter sense the closeness of the Lord as he endured his very own sufferings and shared with Christ in that way? So just some questions, you know, to help us to kind of get into this space of, of Peter's heart as he writes this letter. But who is he writing to? That's, that's the next part of the verse. It says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This is his re, the receiver of this letter or the receivers of this letter. And we'll... This, this area, these are, these are locations, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. You can certainly just do a quick Google search to find them. They're not uh, current, like they're not modern day area. We wouldn't find these on a modern day map, but on the modern day map, they would be in modern day Turkey, um, which is more specifically the northern part of Turkey. And so these were Roman provinces, part of the Roman um, Empire, and from R Rome, where Peter likely is, to this area is, you know, roughly 1,200 miles by land to the, to, to the nearest part, and so this letter travels quite a distance um, to get there. You know, some other things that we can take note of, we see that this is this is a large area and a, and a varied area, okay? And so this, while some letters in the, um, in the New Testament are directed towards specific locations to specific people to specific circumstances, this seems like it's a broad letter. It's, it, it's going to travel a circuit, and it's, gonna, it's not going to be specific towards circumstances, but broad in nature towards circumstances. And so it seems like Peter's writing to believers, Christians, who share a common faith and are experiencing common problems. And so we won't see the specifics of circumstances here, but we can kind of take note that, hmm, this is general to Christians who have a common faith and common problems. And so that makes me feel like it bridges the gap to my life in much easier capacities. And so let's look at these kind of three pieces. Elect, exiles, and of the dispersion. And we're going to start, and we're going to move backwards, or, or in reverse. And so looking at 
this qualifier? What's it mean to be of the dispersion? What's it mean for these elect exiles to be of the dispersion? Well, the word dispersion essentially means scattered. Um, but the word has had type, uh, a type of evolution over, over the biblical history of it. Okay, So the kind of first times you're starting to see this word and understand this word is all the way back in, um, uh, in, the, in the book of Deuteronomy. And so the idea of um, when you disobey the Lord according to the law, you will be removed from the land. You'll be scattered or displaced from the land. And if you look at the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, you'll see that same word um, for scattered or dispersion there. Okay, So back there, it was just referring to Israelites that were no longer in, living in the promised land, but still living according to Jewish practices, Jewish religion, um, so to speak. The land was really important. To, the land is really important to uh, to the Jew. The land was given as an inheritance to Abram all the way back in Genesis 12, where uh, Abram comes to the land and and God tells him, "I'm going to give this land to your children as an inheritance." So. The, the, the physical land of Israel, the physical land of Canaan, would become a symbol of God's special relations with Israel and their inheritance. And so this, became, this physical land became rooted into who they were or are. And so, like I said, the first kind of idea of a dispersion is those is Jews that were exiled because of their disobedience and living in other nations, but still being Jewish by nature, okay, or, or by practice. That was the first way. But, you know, and throughout much of the prophets, we just read in Amos, we just did, we just looked at Amos and it talked about that in there. The Lord warned as uh, by means of punishment, he would remove people uh, for their disobedience from that inheritance, from that land. That disobedience would equal displacement. And the two main dispersions were the two exiles that we can read about in Second Kings. The Assyrian exile, uh, where the Assyrians came and took away part of the nation. And then the Babylonian exile, where the Babylonians came and took the other half of the nation away. And so to be removed and living in a Gentile nation carried with it kind of a, the, the scarlet letter. It, it carried with it shame that we, we've been, God has uh, uh, given us consequences to remove us from this land that he gives us. And so that's, the, that's kind of the beginnings of this word dispersion. But by the time of Jesus... Jews were now everywhere, okay? The, those that were exiled would exile from those locations. And so Jews have spread throughout all the known world. And so we read in John chapter 7, 
Let's turn to John chapter 7, verse 35. We see the, 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 the proof of this in this interaction between the Pharisees and Jesus. And it says in verse 35, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks? Greeks and teach the Greeks. And so you can see that there is this common knowledge that there are Jews dispersed among the Greek world and settled there. And so Jesus is saying, where, where I'm going to go, you can't go, you won't find me. And they're saying, what's he talking about? Is he talking about going into the dispersion to teach to the Greeks? And so Again, this kind of continues with that same theme of dispersion, Greeks living as Greeks, but in other nations. But then, this is where it starts to transform the word. The, the evolution of the word begins in Acts chapter 8. And so, in Acts chapter 8, Pentecost has already happened. Again, the Holy Spirit has come down and now dwells within those that are followers of Christ and have received the forgiveness for their sins. And the church is multiplying and exploding, so much so that Stephen is martyred for his faith. He's one of these disciples that um, uh, have, has come to receive the Holy Spirit and walk in that way. And that almost opens the gate. That that martyr, that martyrdom to Stephen opens the gate for more persecution. And we read in Acts chapter one or chapter eight, verse one, Saul approved of his execution. That's Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered, dispersed throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then if you skip down to verse 4, it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And so this, you see, this dispersed, this scattered, now isn't just Jews, but Jewish Christians. And so J Jewish Christians that left Jerusalem to, to, to dodge the persecution are now going outward into the, into the surrounding nations to um, preach the gospel. And so those that are dispersed aren't just Jewish, they're Jewish Christians. This is, con this is confirmed in James chapter 1 verse 1. James, one of the first letters written, if not the first letter written, it says in its salutation, James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Tribes referring to uh, the Jewish 12 tribes of Israel. So Jewish Christians in the dispersion is who James writes to. And it, and it evolves even one more step as we look in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Now the dispersion we read of 
we can see that he's not just writing to Jewish Christians, he's writing to Gentile and Jewish Christians. That's clear throughout the letter and by way of where he's writing to. Okay, so this is 30 years after this initial persecution, this initial scattering of Jewish Christians. And so by this point, those that are Christian in northern Turkey or Asia Minor, that church is going to be full of not only Jewish Christians, but Gentile Christians. So where he's writing to, but also the contents of the letter would speak to those that are coming from Gentile backgrounds. And so now the word dispersion has evolved to mean any Christian, Jew or Gentile, that is scattered into the nations for the sake of the gospel. Whether because they were sent there or they were, they, that's where they learned and grew in their knowledge of who Christ was and have been planted there all along. So that is our word dispersion. I know that seems like that's a lot for one simple word, but I think there's, there's pieces of the dispersion that I, I learned that I didn't know as I prepared for this that have really opened my eyes to some more of the Lord's sovereignty. For the Jews to be dispersed before Jesus came on the scene, made way, was, was a, it, it, it almost helped in the advent of Christ because now all across the known world, these nations had Jewish people living as Jews, worshiping Yahweh in synagogues, expectantly waiting a Messiah. And so when, the, when Jesus does come on the scene, and he does ransom us with his blood, and he's resurrected, and, he, and, and, and then, he's a, then he ascends and sends the Spirit, and the church multiplies, and persecution comes, and then it scatters. All those scattering with these truths of who Jesus is and what he's done have context to go into these nations and share that with synagogues that are and 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 and, um, and um, cells of Jews that are already waiting for them this Messiah, and so it gave it almost paved the way for the gospel to go multiplying through the nations because of this these this scattering that has happened prior to Christ even coming. And we know this to be true about God. He takes beauty and he and he creates it from ashes. So all type, those aren't the only two exiles, the Assyrian and Babylonian, there's others. But these exiles that came from um, hardship and were hard, from them, beauty was created, a, a way for the gospel to be spread throughout the nations. And so as I, this, this idea of dispersion just grew more and more in my mind and my heart to the Lord's sovereignty. Uh, towards uh, directing me towards the Lord's sovereignty. Even the Septuagint, uh, which has been, is helpful to believers today, was the result of that dispersion as it was written in Egypt prior to Christ coming on the scene. So really interesting stuff. Maybe read some more on your own. Uh, look, look up 
there's a really great resource in Blue Letter Bible that I came across, um, and so check that out. But let's move on to the other description of these that he's writing to. He calls them exiles. So uh, that begs the question, are they simply exiles because of the geographical location? They're not in Israel, so they're exiles. Or is there more weight to this word? And you're probably sensing that I'm going to go with the latter. There's more weight to this word exile than simply geographical displacement. The word exile is uh, a grouping of words put together. I'm going to butcher it, but parapidemos, paraepidemos, something like that. But I understand the the breakdown because one, the first half is para, which you might hear parallel, okay, simply meaning alongside or near, parallel lines. Parallel specifically means alongside one another. And so we, so two lines that are alongside one another, parallel. Okay, so that's alongside or near. Epidemio, this, the latter half of the word, simply means a foreign resident or visitor or being among a people. Um, epidemio, you might hear epidemic you know, kind of sad face because of what we're going through right now. You know, the difference between an epidemic and pandemic, if you didn't know, is a pandemic is, uh, is, a, is an infectious disease or a virus that goes throughout um, groups, uh, multiple groups of people, pan, all, okay? So multiple. So this COVID pandemic is called such because it's worldwide, okay? An epidemic is the same thing, but it only goes through a, 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 a select core group of people, okay? And so epidemio is a, a, a collective group of people, um, among a people. Uh, you know, epi, upon, people, group, upon a people, okay? So putting those two things together, it's uh, this, this word for exile, paraepidemos, is one who comes from a foreign place to reside alongside natives. One who comes from a foreign place to reside among or alongside parallel to natives. And that's that's we still feel like that's geographical, okay? I was in I was in Jerusalem, I now I've been scattered and now I'm in exile in another another place. But as we said before, this was written to Jews and Gentiles, this letter specifically. The contents of it tells us that. And it's a large span of churches 30 years later. And so there has to be more to this because it's highly likely that not every believer that Peter is writing to came from that Acts chapter 8 scattering of believers. And so it can't mean I'm just a foreigner living in northern Turkey among natives. So some other translations might help us uh, of the English Bible. Some go as strangers here. Some go with pilgrims. I really like that word. I love the book Pilgrim's Progress. Some go with foreigners, sojourners, 
resident aliens. And so you're getting this kind of picture that it may not just be geographical here. There might be something more. And I think we're going to use Hebrews 11, chapter 13 to si- or chapter 11, verses 13 to 16 to help us here. So verses 13 to 16 um, read this way. This is the hall of faith, a very common passage that many of you would likely know. Speaking of these past saints that uh, perished before Christ was on the scene, it says this, These all died, these people, all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers, there's our word, and exiles on the earth. This helps clarify it even more. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Old Testament saints, described as strangers and exiles on earth, not desiring that they would return to the land that they had left, but they would desire a better country, a heavenly one. The more we consider the backdrop of this letter, the more we see it's just as much for us as it is, was for the churches of northern Asia Minor. That it, the exile is not just an exile by geographical location, but an exile on earth. Uh, one that is living as a foreigner among a native people, but the foreign nation that we come from, that, we're, that we belong to, is a heavenly one. So do we connect, do you and I, do you connect with the, this exile language? I would say for most of, most of us, including myself, no. I don't connect with this exile language. I, I was born and I have lived in the United States, uh, this geographical location, for my entire life. And you probably have too. There's only a small percentage of us that haven't. And while it is a reality, it is a reality that we are not citizens of this world, but of a heavenly realm. And we're just traveling through this time and place. That's abstract to us. It's a reality, but it's abstract. That part of who we are, I'm an American, is is so knit tight within us. And I haven't had any experiences that have loosed that at all or have tested its, 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 its strength. Um, so I, that's my experience. And so to help me understand that, I asked some of the folks that are within our fellowship that, this, that have had a more concrete experience of this, that have had experiences that have shaken the identity of their native land. Um, and... I've asked them to kind of share with me a little bit about what their experience was like to be originally from a different country, but then have moved into another context 
for an extended period of time to live as a foreigner among another native people, as the resident alien or as the pilgrim. And through that, each of them have described how the, that national identity has been tested by that process, that's been shaken loose by that process. And so here's the hope. It's not that we just start thinking about what's it mean to be an American or what's it mean to be from X, Y, or Z country. What I hope to, that by sharing these things that they've shared with me, um, that it helps us that, they, um, that we learn what the implications are of living as a stranger in exile in this world, even if we are deeply rooted in our national identity, that we would learn of their experience and learn, okay, that's an implication of what it means to live as a heavenly citizen in an earthly world. You know, I think about the, the many agricultural parables that Jesus used. And if, you, and if a farmer, a farmer that's uh, lived his whole life as a farmer, reads these parables, they grasp him in such a different way than I do. Now, the, we, we trust that the Holy Spirit gives insight, but just the experience of the farmer and what he's done his entire life helps to take those words and, and make them part of who he is because he understands them. And so, too, can these folks understand the, that exile language of Peter and the writer of Hebrews. And so here's one, some of the words of one person uh, that I spoke with. Um, they said the process of disconnecting from and reconnecting to this new place and culture is deeply painful, complicated, and this word, never-ending throughout a person's life. Two of the most complex issues I have dealt with are identity and a sense of belonging. Because it doesn't matter how much I try to adapt or assimilate to the new culture, there's always someone or something out there to remind me that I don't belong. Okay, and, and the person described it as those aren't always intentional. It could be as simple as, oh, where, I hear your accent. Where are you from? And that simple statement is not evil in any way, but it's, a, it's a, just a, a little bit of a reminder that this isn't my true home. They go on and said, there's even a magnetic attraction to go back home and regain the feeling of belonging that I desperately long for. But unfortunately, when typically when immigrants or exiles go back home, they might find themselves in limbo of not belonging there either. And now they got two feet on two different, in two different contexts and don't belong anywhere. So who am I? Where do I belong? Where do I go now? These are self-questions that they ask themselves. And I love this, the way they responded to their own questions, because it shows that the, the scripture and, and what God says about them as his identity for them has rooted itself deep. She went on to say, the only true answer to those questions is in God. He is the only nationality or identity that truly makes me feel like myself, regardless of where I may live or how others perceive me. 
I've had to find myself again in who I am in Christ to have a real sense of belonging and value. So you can see that the challenge, even if it's by choice, many of these people aren't exiles. Maybe all of them aren't exiles in the truest sense of the word. But even by, if we go to another national context by choice, the, 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 the hardship that it has in a never-ending way. Some of the other descriptors from some of the other folks, they constantly feel like the other. Okay, they're always the other. There's an underlying tension that's built up over, over the course of time. It's not a heavy tension all the time. It's just a light tension for an extended period of time because there's a kind of a foot in both worlds. There's even legal restrictions. How much you can give or receive from your new context uh, is limited. How much, how much do you decide to assimilate in to this new culture, this new context? Scared to become too enchanted, and even though I know that I'm here only in a temporary way. There's bigger questions. How do you be a friend? Every culture treats social relationships vastly differently. So how do I, I want to be a good friend. How do I do that? There's a difficulty there. There's some really basic ones. I don't look like anyone else. One of the guys I talked to said, I am, I moved to this other, this other context and I was the only black person. And so I stood out. We, you know, many of you know Jeff and Linda Simpson. They stand out everywhere they go. People call out to them in the streets everywhere they go because, just simply because they look different. One of the deeper ones was the, the struggle of being lonely. Very few, one person said this, very few, when you're around another context and there are very few like you, you're lonely. You're constantly reminded that this isn't your home. But the, to the brighter side of that, the one person, uh, Linda, actually described, it's such a blessing to come into contact with another American because uh, I don't have to explain myself anymore. They get me. And so the blessing to be what... To, to come into contact with one of the minor the minorities that are like you is a great blessing and how true of that for the church okay and so how do we live as an exile for us that don't uh, quite as easily grasp this exile language that the scripture speaks of what do we take away? How do we live like an exile? Well, I think one way is to ask ourselves the question. Many of the implications of living an exile like an exile for these people that I spoke with are harder implications. And so I think one question that we can kind of ask ourselves as we walk away from this is, do I feel any of those things towards 
my, my identity as a Christian in this world. So I might be an American and feel comfortable in a national way, but is that comfort, does that comfort bridge into my spiritual world, my spiritual life, or is there a defined border? And actually, even though I live in America and feel comfortable nationally, I still don't feel like I belong here because my citizenship is in heaven and I'm just a pilgrim passing through. And so I guess one self-reflecting question is, how comfortable am I? Are, are any of these ways that were described by a national exile by these people, my experience, my, my experience on a spiritual level? And maybe that points to um, we've, we're, we are in the world and of the world rather than being not of the world but in the world. That was confusing. Hopefully you can go back and listen to that part again. <laughs> so that's one way. Just at reflecting on that, does this reality of I am an exile, does that, is that my experience on a practical level, on a day-to-day -day level? Um, do I feel like an exile even though I'm not a national exile? The last way that maybe we can kind of consider what it means to be an exile besides just considering our own experience and our own comfort with the world that we live in is to consider some of the ways that scripture speaks of on how to live like an exile while we might not be nationally. One way, if we turn to Matthew chapter 6, Verse, verses 19 and 20 is to see the temporary posture we are to have towards this world. It says in chapter 6, verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so that, that is twofold. It, it kind of arcs back to what I just said, where you can ask yourself, well, where are my treasures? And that kind of gives you a sense of where is your identity? Is it, a, is it a heavenly citizenship or is it an earthly one, a worldly one? But it also gives the what to do. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where decay and, um, and, and fading and perishing happens to these treasures, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Live on this earth in a temporary posture. I I feel like I did this better earlier in my walk than I'm doing it now, later in my walk. And I'm trying to get back to this posture of whatever you say, Lord, where you can, you can tell me to leave this, this place and go do X, Y, and Z in another location, and I will be willing to. I feel like my wife and I were, had that posture earlier in our walk, 
And we've maybe been sleeping on that posture recently, and I'm trying to get it back, that I'm living as though my bags are packed, that the Lord has the right to call me up out of this and move me into another context because this whole realm, that this whole worldly, earthly realm is temporary and is not my home. I'm not to be putting roots down here in the sense of I'm going to build my life upon what is here. I'm building my life upon the eternal, and that means I live with my bags packed. I was talking with Jeff and Linda earlier about about these experiences. They're kind of the reverse. They've been kind of, they were, they're Americans, but they've been living in Kenya for a while and, and maybe feel that exile experience there. But they were here this past summer on furlough for a longer period of time. And Linda described that after five months of being in the States, I started to settle and, and feel comfortable and almost not think about so much what it would be to go back, but to stay. And how quickly in just five months uh, of being in a more in a in a in a context that we're comfortable with, with that w- that we feel part of, um, how much we settle into that. And I'd say that's true for all of us. Is how quickly we settle into what we know, and how much we have to fight to keep that pilgrim mindset in the forefront of our minds. So that's one. Live temperate. Live as. It, this place, this earthly, worldly place is temporary. The second is in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And here we go. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. But right at the beginning of verse 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world. We've been saying it to, to be in the world, but not of the world. That if we imagine ourselves in whatever context as moldable, that the context that we're in, whether it be the, the, the Western culture of the United States or the Eastern culture of uh, Asia or, or wherever, the, the culture, the society, the context that we're in wouldn't be the molder, but the potter, the maker would be the molder of us. Our Heavenly Father would be the one molding us, conforming us, shaping us, not what's the world around us, the way in which that molds. Everyone is being molded by something. You are not separate or able to go through this life being your own molder. You are being molded. And so who, what is molding you? Romans 12 tells us to be not conformed to this world, but by re- but be transformed by the renewal of our mind. And the last thing, the last way we are to live as an exile in this uh, this world 
is to be a blessing. To be a blessing right where we're at, wherever we're at. Many times through the, the New Testament, Jesus would teach on being a light where you are, a light in darkness, a city on a hill, salt, a way of a, a, a vehicle of preservation and flavor to uh, the world we live in. These the people that he's writing to in Turkey would be living in the Roman Empire. Okay, there's no rights to vote, and um, there's no, uh, you know, there's no culture of monotheism and um, Judeo-Christian ethic. There, it, not even previous. Like we, we feel like as Americans, we're leaving that time of our our, our history as a nation. There was no previous history of that in the Roman Empire, and so as he writes to them. To, to, to think of themselves as citizens from heaven, living as exiles in this world, he's at the same time giving them the, 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 the encouragement to be light and salt. And you'll see that, not using those words specifically, but that, that, that idea of being a blessing in the culture that you're in, wherever you are, will be brought out through the rest of Peter's letter to them. In Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah writes a letter to those that are in exile. So he's writing those that have already been exiled because of their disobedience. He writes a letter to them. And in the letter, he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Babylon. And he says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease. And then he goes on, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And so we are called, even as exiles, to be a blessing where we're living as exiles. And so the last thing that we can look at here is this descriptor of the elect. Because he says, not only are the exiles of the dispersion, they're elect exiles of the dispersion. And to be chosen or elect is has throughout scripture is always a way of encouragement that even though you may feel the hardships the the tough parts of being in exile the loneliness the the feeling like the other the not belonging the hard pieces of being in exile he adds this this descriptor of you are god's chosen you are God's elect and he says it to begin this letter that he will venture into how to live as a suffering servant he will start it with this encouragement that you are God's chosen elect and that he knows you and he has known you and that's not just he's known what you did like a like 
he's sitting there recording every misstep or every positive thing you did. No, he knows you personally, relationally. That's what it means to be God's chosen. And so he starts this letter with these three descriptions, that they're of the dispersion, they're exiles of that dispersion, and they're chosen to be so. And such is with you and I, chosen to be exiles, heavenly citizens living in an earthly world, and we're chosen to do so and to be a blessing in doing so. So with that, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time in your word, and we'd ask that as we go about this week, that for many of us, including myself, to grow in that exile thinking, that pilgrim thinking, that sojourner thinking, and to give you back the reins to our lives that we may live temporarily with our bags packed, ready to be a blessing in any way possible into this strange world that we live in, but all, all the while being molded by you, being conformed by you. And then we do that through your, through your, through your spirit, through your word, and through uh, the way you use the body of believers. So thank you for all these things and the great blessing of being chosen by you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. We're going to close with a time of worship. Be blessed.